0: and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. You might notice if you are a regular listener that my voice sounds a little bit different today. Um, I may or may not have had uh, a little bit of a karaoke experience recently, and I'm still recovering, but we are gonna get through this together. What is this, you might ask, if you happened to download this without any idea of what you were getting yourself into? Great question. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not-so-possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're starting in the year 2028.
1: Hey, robot, play me my newsfeed. Something new and quite frightening appears to be happening with the Nicole Manso virus, commonly referred to as NM. For decades, NM was a virus that appeared largely in monkeys and only occasionally in humans with mild symptoms. There have been a few small NM outbreaks over the years, but very few cases are severe enough to even report symptoms. Things began to change last year when cases of NM began appearing in Southeast Asia and Africa, accompanied by a host of new, strange symptoms. Those infected with NM reported strong cravings for dairy products like milk and cheese, as well as difficulty sleeping, restlessness, and a strong desire to be around crowds. Doctors only connected these cases with the NM virus after a young child was trampled in an intersection in Calcutta. Now, the CDC has expanded the list of countries that Americans should avoid because of NM. Health officials say they still don't know why the NM virus is causing these changes, how long they last, or whether they are in and of themselves dangerous. So far, there is no treatment. For NM.
2: Next. Okay, here's the thing. We're meant to believe, and again, I'm just repeating what I'm reading right now, but this is what they're saying. We're supposed to believe that this infection is brand new. Came out of nowhere. These scientists want us to think there was simply no warning. No signs. Not a single case that made anybody say, hey, wait a minute now, this is kind of weird. And now, now we have what? Thousands of cases? Again, there, there's something about all of this that the longer it goes on, the more incredulous I am at it. When you realize the depth, the, the planning, the, the number of people involved here. What's the budget for the National Science Foundation again? Eight billion dollars? and I'm supposed to believe that this was a complete surprise. Now, I can imagine there are people in the audience saying, you're overthinking this. They're just idiots. They're just bad at their jobs. You know, scientists are full of it. You know that they, they take the money and they squirrel it away and it's a waste. Yes, yes, certainly that's true in most cases. But this, listen, I, I just don't buy it. I don't buy it. There, there is something more going on here. Something they don't want you to know. We're talking about literal mind control here, and you expect me to believe that not a single person in the government knew about it? Please. The cat's gotten out of the bag, and they're just doing damage control. Next.
3: Blood donation in the United States has screeched to a halt as the NM outbreak continues to worsen. The FDA originally mandated that all donated blood be tested for NM, but since the mandate, several cases have been reported of the virus being spread via blood donation. In the wake of the transmission, donation has been paused completely and experts worry that blood banks might soon dry up completely. Next.
4: Welcome to another session with Dave and myself. Today we're going to show you How to protect yourself, what you're going to need is some masking tape. Masking tape, buy at any Home Depot, get cheap stuff, it doesn't have to be expensive. Dollar store, wherever you can get it, okay, whatever you can afford. Remember, this is all based on your, your, your your economics. So,
2: now what you're going to do
4: is you're going to get magnets. Now, I got these at Michael's, you get about 52 of them. I think 52 or 55 of them for um, uh, 15 bucks.
0: Next.
3: The Center for Disease Control and Prevention announced this morning that the NM vaccine was still months away. The announcement comes as panic around NM continues to grow as the virus spreads. Without national guidance on what to do, local officials have taken precautions into their own hands. In New York City, the outbreak has caused complete havoc on the streets and in the subways. People infected with NM out crowds, which has caused several fatalities in the subway system. As hordes of infected people crowd the subway platforms, eventually pushing people onto the tracks. New York City Mayor Zebediah Kilgrave issued a state of emergency last week and mandated that anybody infected with NM must remain indoors. Next.
2: Hey guys. Okay, another video here to help you protect yourself against NM. Doctors say you basically can't, but that's a lie, of course. They just want you to think that, you can actually protect yourself. So today, I'm gonna show you how to make this anti-NM suit. You're gonna need some clothes you don't care about. I got a pair of sweats at Walmart. You also need a bucket, like a paint bucket. And then you need bleach, apple cider vinegar, propane, and Raid, like the stuff you use to kill cockroaches.
0: Next. Okay, so in this future, a parasite has infected humans, making them behave Strangely, wanting to eat new foods, seeking out other people, generally wreaking havoc and causing all sorts of weird things to happen. So basically, what we're talking about here is mind control by Parasite. And this is an idea that's kind of at the heart of two recent science fiction novels. The Genius Plague by David Walton.
3: The Genius Plague is about a fungal disease that spreads and takes root in Humans. My name is David Walton. I am a science fiction author, and that's both who I am and what I do. So, this <laughs> is that cover it?
0: And Rosewater by Tade Thompson.
5: Rosewater is about a very slow alien invasion and its effect on one particular man. I'm Tade Thompson. I am the author of the book Rosewater and other books. Um, I work as a psychiatrist in the general hospital in my day job. So writing is my secret identity.
0: In the genius plague, the fungus that we're talking about is earthly.
3: The basic idea is that um, this uh, disease, if you survive it, which most do, um, will uh, give you a certain certain advantage. You'll have this uh, fungus living symbiotically in your brain. And it allows you to think more clearly, make better connections, learn more easily, learn languages, uh, especially uh, communicate more easily with other people who have this same
5: symbiotic fungus.
0: In Rosewater, the infection is alien.
5: It's an alien invasion story. It's a sort of redemption story. It's a story about the character himself, Kara. It's a kind of allegory about how Africa was colonized as well. So it's, it's fun for all the family, really.
0: Now, these two books have a lot of differences, and I won't spoil too much of the plot of either one for you. But they also have some really interesting similarities because they're both rooted in this idea of a parasitic infection that behaves like a fungus. One of the key things that happens in the Genius Plague is that those infected by this fungus become connected to one another. And that happens in Rosewater, too. People who are infected by this alien, fungus-like thing can access something that Tade calls the xenosphere. And this idea of connectivity and connectedness comes from the very real biology of fungi.
3: Fungi can, can do that. They can spread uh, over a long distance and then communicate uh, Kind of like a neural network, you have this vast network. It has no uh, central point, so it's not like uh, you know. There's some central brain that is sending out these tendrils and bringing the information back to the central point. You know, every bit of it is the same, and yet it manages to um, have some very sophisticated functions where it's communicating, and in some ways, um, you wouldn't say thinking necessarily, depending on what you mean by that, but it's, you know, making decisions, determining that uh, really the, you know, this bit of moisture is better over there and these nutrients are better over this way. And, um, uh, you know, but it, you could destroy any part of it and the whole is still there.
5: The main effect is for the the storage and transfer of information, which is not so complicated for a fungus. The the hyphae, the fruiting bodies, and the long strands of a fungus, they actually have enough in common with a neuron that you could use them for, neuro, uh, for nerve transmission. And that's that's the part of it that I that I really use from, from from fungi. Like, okay, look, the way they're designed, you could conceivably transmit, you know, neurons. You could transmit a nervous impulse along their, along their hyphae.
0: In both books, the parasite that has infected humans is mostly interested in surviving. It needs humans to do that. But it doesn't really care about humans or our well-being exactly. And one of the first things that happens in both stories when these infections begin to spread is that governments get involved.
5: There is no way a government organization isn't going to get involved. Because it's a global thing. It needs command and control. It needs resources. It needs someone to have some kind of overreaching powers in order to make certain decisions. So you need an organization to do that, otherwise the human race is doomed. So, yeah does not you know that, that
3: had to happen in, in the actual plot uh, there is a, a man who is working for the NSA who is uh, seeing kind of subtly the changes that are happening in world governments and around the world as uh, this thing spreads and starts really uh, shifting loyalties and changing things and um, having to uh, grapple both in that global scale and then his own personal scale with his uh, brother who is a mycologist and his father who has Alzheimer's, which could possibly be uh, reversed or even cured with this, um, whether this is in fact uh, something that is good for humanity or, or not.
0: And of course, this makes sense, right? If you have a parasite that is changing the behavior of people all over the world, that is a small issue. We talked a little bit about what might happen during an outbreak a few episodes ago, but this is a slightly different thing, right? It's not killing people it's just changing them and that's kind of scary too right how do you know who is acting under their own power and who is being secretly controlled by this infection and in both books different countries react differently to the infection
5: one of the things that happens when you get when you get a visitor or a stranger that you don't know is that you project intent onto a stranger and the projection that you do is actually based on what you would do if you were a stranger in the place. So the United Kingdom, for example, has a history of going to other people's countries and taking over their resources and taking over their governments. Right. There's a long history of that. So it is natural, for example, for the United Kingdom to think if aliens are coming, they're going to be hostile and we will, we're going to have to fight them.
0: In Rosewater, America just goes completely dark.
5: The United States reacts in the way they do because it, it, that's basic, that was basically an extrapolation of what's already happening, all right? Um, more and more, you're kind of withdrawing from the world and pulling into your borders and saying, okay, look, we're just going to be America. The rest of you can do whatever the hell you like.
0: Rosewater is set primarily in Nigeria. And in Nigeria, they just learn to live with these
5: aliens. Africa, on the other hand, again, has already experienced colonialism. We've already been invaded by pretty much every West, Western nation there is. Um, and we kind of have an idea. We have experience of dealing with aliens because the British were aliens to us, at least to Nigerians anyway. The Germans were to others, you know, the French to others and then so on. Like the idea was that you had people coming, one who did not look like us, and two who were basically technologically advanced. We didn't speak our language. So they were aliens by any definition. By any way you look at it, they were aliens to us. And so we had to negotiate how to live with them, basically. And that's, 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 that's how I made my choices.
0: In The Genius Plague, there are also people who accept this fungus into their lives. In fact, the main tension in the book is between two brothers, one of whom is infected and one of whom is not. The one who is infected believes that the enhanced cognitive abilities that he has, thanks to this fungus, are totally worth it. And this character, Paul, goes on these long rants about how this basically is the next step in human evolution.
3: Paul is very well-reasoned. He's not a mindless automaton that is just repeating some phrase. He's a very intelligent, even more intelligent now, in fact, uh, person who is able to argue quite clearly and oftentimes convincingly about the value of this and how it shouldn't be feared and how it's good for humanity. And uh, I think sometimes you read his arguments and, and you're convinced by them.
0: And some of the arguments that Paul makes in the book are very familiar to me. If you have ever read about or think about or talked to transhumanists, people who are really interested in updating and upgrading and altering their bodies, you hear these exact kinds of arguments all the time. And that is what David was going for.
3: You know, I, I want people to be asking the questions and, and thinking about those, you know, kind of deeper philosophical ideas of, um, is, is there a real me? <laughs> and, and what does it mean? You know, I'm changing all the time. I'm a different person than I was uh, a year ago or 10 years ago or five minutes ago to some extent. Um, and I'm influenced by the people around me as well as by um, everything that I put into my body and experience. So Paul's arguments that this is the real me um, can be can be fairly convincing.
0: And this question of how much a fungus or a parasite might change the real you, and those are big air quotes that I'm doing, is another key link between The Genius Plague and Rosewater. Both books really poke at this idea of what it means to have a true personality, what it means to be altered or not in control of your real self.
3: You know, we think of ourselves as entirely autonomous, but, you know, what are the things that um, can change who we are from little things like, uh, you know, drinking a, a Coke or, or some alcohol um, to uh, more substantial drugs or in this case, a, a fungus living in your brain?
5: Because what I'm kind of leading up to is the idea or the illusion of free will. As you are growing up, you're also being programmed by the society into which you're being born, into which you live. OK, so the society tells you this is how to behave. If you want something, you say, please. And the other person says, thank you. All right. And that's how th- those are the social lubricants. This is how you ask, you know, someone you like to a date. This is the way you work. You go to work on time. You come back. You don't take other people's property. This is what we do to people who break the social contract and so on and so on and so on. So every day people wake up, brush their teeth. You know, put on their clothes, shower, do whatever, go to work, go through the work and they come back, put on the television as if they made a choice to do so. But in fact, they've been programmed to do most of what they did that day. They've been programmed how to respond to aggression. Pretty much everything they're doing has been programmed into them. So
0: how different is that really from, say, a mind controlling parasite? Okay, it's very different, but you get what I'm saying here, right? The idea that we have full control of our decisions all of the time is already a bit of an illusion. So why not hand over our decision-making to a fungus that's controlling our brains? No? Okay, fine. So both David and Tade have thought a lot about this parasite stuff in their fictional worlds. And in both books, there is a struggle between the parasite and the humans. But if this really happened in the real world, Tade says that he is confident in our ability to kill whatever it is.
5: Humans can kill pretty much everything. We will figure it out. People will die, but we will definitely figure it out. Somebody will make the hard choices, but we will will figure it out. We can kill anything.
0: But how possible is this scenario? How likely is it that humans could be infected by a parasite that controls our behavior? In reality, it probably wouldn't be a fungus. Here is where it's helpful that Tade is also a doctor.
5: I should probably point out at this point, if you get a fungal infection that affects your brain or spinal cord, it's probably going to be dead. I mean, if you get candida of the, you know, candida of the nervous system or if you get something like aspergillosis, things like this, they're going to give you meningitis and you're going to die if you don't get treated.
0: But it could be something else in theory. And in fact, there are examples of this really happening in nature. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some real-life mind-controlling parasites in two different species, ants and humans. Okay, so we're leaving the realm of science fiction now and moving into the realm of things that seem like science fiction, but in fact are totally real. Probably the most famous example of a mind-controlling fungus is something called Ophiocordyceps unilataris, a.k.a.
6: cordyceps. And generally, these are the fungi that we see infecting ants. And uh, it's not that they just infect them and kill them, but they actually uh, take over the behavior of these ants. My name is uh, Charissa Becker. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of biology uh, at the University of Central Florida. And uh, my lab studies uh, zombie ants.
0: Yes, zombie ants. You might have heard of this before, but Cordyceps infects ants all over the world. Sharissa studies Cordyceps that infect a group of ants commonly known as carpenter ants.
6: So carpenter ants are super common. They're, you see them all uh, all over the globe. They're they're rather big most of the time, and sometimes people refer to them as as uh, wood ants um, uh, because. You see them, for instance, in around your uh, in and around your house, in um, the eastern coast of uh, or at the eastern coast of the U.S. Uh, They're actually some of the species are actually considered a pest because they get into buildings and um, uh, they do some damage there. Uh, But most of these carpenter ants, they're in woods and in the woods, and you can find them either by um, nest in the forest floor or um, uh, in dead tree stumps.
0: Side note, when I was a kid, I had a carpenter ant infestation in our house, and it was not good. Cordyceps is probably the most famous example of a fungus that infects ants. And Sharissa actually got interested in studying these zombie ants after seeing a segment about them on the BBC.
6: Just watching BBC Planet Earth, you know, the easy, the easy way to get some, some knowledge about the natural world around us. Um, I was just mesmerized um, by these fungi.
0: So with the help of David Attenborough, let's talk about what happens when these ants get infected by cordyceps. First, a spore from the cordyceps infects the ant. And scientists actually still don't know exactly how that infection happens.
6: So it could be one that the spore just lands on the ant, kind of attaches to it, and then is able to, uh, to grow. And, and, push itself through, uh, through the cuticle of the ant and go, go inside, uh, inside the body. Or, um, the spores fall on the forest floor. And then from the, from those spores, other spore structures form, form. And then the ants kind of walk over this and pick up those secondary structures. So we think it's either of those two, um, uh, situations, but we don't know exactly what's going on here.
0: Either way, once the spore gets into the ant and starts to grow, it starts to change the ant's behavior. Now, normally, ants are very,
6: very social. These ants seem to become a little bit asocial. Um, they don't react to their, their um, sister so well anymore. And uh, at one point, they decide to leave the nest, climb up the vegetation.
1: Its infected brain directs this ant upwards.
6: Then, utterly disorientated, it grips a stem with its mandibles. That's where they will latch on, so they will bite onto either a leaf or a twig. And this is eventually where uh, the fungus kills them.
0: Like something out of science fiction, the fruiting body of the cordyceps erupts from the ant's head. So you really have to see this video because what's happening now is that this very, very long, thin stalk is just growing out of the ant's head. And it just keeps growing. It can take three weeks to grow. And when finished, the deadly spores will burst from
4: its tip. Then any ant in the vicinity will be in serious risk of
5: death.
0: I will post a link to that BBC clip in the show notes, because if you have never seen it, you really have to check it out. It is incredible. And honestly, if you have seen it, you should go rewatch it because it's so cool. And while the BBC clip focuses on ants in the jungles of the Amazon, this happens in ants all
6: over the world. One of the reasons why um, my lab is in Florida is because here in Central Florida, uh, this infection is actually quite common. When we go out for a hike here, um, and if you know what to look for, you can actually quite easily find uh, infected ants latching on to, to palm leaves, for instance. Um, it's, it's really, it's very, very common here.
0: So I knew about cordyceps before this, but I had no idea that you could actually go out and find them in Florida. If you live in Florida and you go on a hike sometime soon, please be on the lookout for these and take pictures. I really want to see one. So we know that this fungus does this to ants. Charissa sees it in her lab. They see it in the wild. But there are still a ton of unanswered questions about how exactly cordyceps does this. Like, is it turning on certain genes? Is it whispering in the ant's ear? Like, how does it actually make the ant do stuff?
6: So what we think is that the fungi are secreting certain active Bioactive compounds uh, such as alkaloids.
0: Bioactive compounds are basically compounds that do stuff to biology. And alkaloids are a big group of molecules with a lot of different properties, but they include things that we already know alters behavior, like
6: caffeine and LSD. So, a mind altering compound that is affecting the brain in a certain way uh, to change the behavioral output.
0: But it's not just
6: alkaloids. Charissa thinks that there are a ton of compounds involved here. A whole bunch of compounds we think the, the fungus is secreting very precisely to kind of, yeah, to manipulate the behavior, to so kind of draw the strings of, of its ant puppet, as people like to say.
0: To figure out what might be going on, she basically creates
6: zombie ants
0: in her lab. So you have a whole lab full of just zombie
6: ants. <laughs> um, not a whole lab full. Most, most of our ants are just happy, uh, happy carpenter ants that are kind of freeloading right now because they get a lot of uh, a lot of sugar and protein from us that they don't have to really go and explore the forest for. Uh, so most of them are just happy go lucky carpenter ants. But uh, yes, we do have some zombie ants in there.
0: OK, so not a whole army of zombies, but some zombies. And what she does is basically try to press pause on the infection at various times and then measure what's going on both with the fungus and the ant at different stages of the infection. For
6: instance, if you then uh, look at the ant at the point where it's actually going to uh, bite the leaf or, or a twig or the substrate that we give them, um, we quickly sample the ant. Um, uh, get RNA out of the ant and study the gene expression in, in, in both the ant and the fungus. So we get an idea of what genes are actually activated at the different, uh, different time points.
0: With each little piece of this, they can start to construct a timeline of what's happening at each moment of this infection. It's slow-going work, but they are starting to build a picture of what might be happening inside these ants. Humans are never going to be infected by cordyceps. In fact, cordyceps and their ant hosts have been evolving alongside one another for a very
6: long time. As far as we know, as far as the species have been described, um, the fungus co-evolves very, seem to be co-evolving very closely with its host in such a way that each, each ant host that gets infected with Ophiocordyceps has its own specialized species of Ophiocordyceps infecting it.
0: Which means that cordyceps is not going to jump over to humans. But there is a parasite that does infect humans, and you might have heard about it changing our behavior.
4: Overall, it's about 30% or a third of the world, basically, is infected with toxo. At some point, there were some studies that showed that I think 85% of France was infected with toxo. Um, It wouldn't be a stretch to call it by far the most successful parasite um, that we know of.
0: This is Sandeep Ravindran.
4: I'm a freelance uh, science writer, uh, and before I became a science writer, I actually used to study toxoplasma, or toxo, um, and that's what I did my Ph.D. on.
0: Toxoplasma, or toxo for short, is this weird little parasite that lives inside animal cells, and it's found in tons of different animals.
4: It's in cats and otters and kangaroos and uh, dolphins and birds, all kinds of uh, different birds.
0: And it's found in humans. Most of the time, a toxo infection in a human is no big deal. If you happen to get infected with toxo while you're pregnant, it does increase your risk of miscarriage and birth defects. But for everybody else...
4: I mean, it just feels like a mild flu. So it's really not, you know... So some headache, um, maybe a fever, uh, but nothing too serious and goes away within a couple of weeks.
0: But the key thing here is that once you have toxo, you have it forever. The parasite lives inside your cells and there's pretty much no way to get it out, which can wind up causing problems for some people down the road.
4: If you at some point later become immunocompromised, uh, it can sort of, I guess, burst out of the cysts where it's hiding and uh, cause a severe infection again. So if you it's, it's usually not a problem for, you know, unless you're immunocompromised.
0: Now, you might have heard of Toxo before, because even though it's not a super dangerous parasite for humans in most cases, it does have some very weird effects on rodents.
4: Rats and mice have this really strong, innate fear of cats and cat urine. And once they're infected with toxo, basically this fear seems to go away. So now they're more willing to hang out in places where there's uh, cat urine versus, you know, the ones that aren't infected with toxo. They they just want to get the hell away from anything remotely that smells like cat urine.
0: Okay, so normally if a rodent, like a rat or a mouse, smells cat urine, they run away, which makes sense, right? Cat urine means cat, which means danger. But in 2000, a parasitologist named Joanne Webster found that rats that were infected with toxoplasma were way less afraid of cat urine than those who were not infected with toxoplasma. And when Webster published her work in 2000, everybody was super skeptical. But this effect is real and has been replicated over and over again. Now, let's not overstate this. The toxo mice are simply a little bit less afraid of cat urine than the non-toxo mice.
4: Uh, I don't know if the the fatal and attraction might be a bit of a stretch. You know, if you actually put a cat there, they will still run away. So it's not like they're (laughs) jumping into the cat's mouth because now they're sort of (laughs) um, attracted to them.
0: So the other thing you should know about toxo is that in order to reproduce, it has to find its way into cats.
4: And, you know, gets into cats, it reproduces sexually and then comes out um, in cat poop.
0: So toxo has to get into cats and toxo infection makes mice and rats less afraid of cats, which is a very interesting connection, right? This suggests that the toxo is actually manipulating the brains of these rodents so that they are more likely to find their way into a cat's belly so that that toxo can then infect the cat and reproduce. And this has led to another theory that involves humans, which is the so-called crazy cat lady hypothesis. We know that Toxo can manipulate rodent behavior to be less afraid of cats. We also know that Toxo wants to be inside of cats to reproduce. So this theory goes that perhaps Toxo is also manipulating humans to like cats more so that the toxo inside of humans can get into cats and can reproduce and spread. So people who love cats, people with like 15 cats, might actually love them because a parasite is manipulating their brain into loving them so that it can finish its life cycle. I actually read about this years ago, and until doing research for this episode, I thought it was true. In fact, it is almost certainly not true
4: as far as we know no <laughs> there's absolute. there's there's no evidence or there's no evidence that um you know is convincing that e- either being infected with toxoplasma either makes you like cats more or uh, makes you want to be around cats more or, <laughs> or any such thing or you know makes makes you a crazy cat lady there's, there's nothing that <laughs> supports any of that
0: In fact, researchers are not convinced that toxo is actually intentionally making rodents less afraid of cats, specifically in order to finish their life cycle. It might instead just be a coincidental side effect of another thing that toxo does, which is make male rodents more attractive to female rodents. We won't get into the nitty-gritty on the competing theories about how Toxo works and what is actually happening right now. But patrons will get an explainer on this in their newsletter this week. So if you want that, go to patreon.com slash flashforwardpod and sign up for the newsletter tier. So there's no evidence at all that Toxo manipulates humans to like cats more. But that's actually not the only claim that people have made about what TOXO might be doing to humans.
4: Uh, there's been some s- studies looking at uh, saying that if you're infected with TOXO, you're more likely to get into traffic accidents or have episodes of explosive rage. Um, there's even been some even more speculative studies that said that pretty much all global cultural differences might be uh, at least slightly attributed to TOXO. <laughs> um,
0: Studies have tried to make connections between Toxo infections and suicide, schizophrenia, depression, and even things like business decisions. A recent study tried to make the claim that students infected with Toxo were more likely to major in business than students without. Here is a headline for that study.: Quote, "Want to be an entrepreneur? This cat parasite might help you." This is almost certainly not true. Most of these studies, in fact, should be taken with a huge grain of salt.
4: I'd say the vast majority of uh, of these studies are one-offs that have haven't really been replicated, or you know, are not the most convincing.
0: There is one small exception to this.
4: I think the most, um, co- I mean, the most studied is probably the association between um, toxo infection and schizophrenia. And that one, there, there's been a, a ton of studies about this. And I think the consensus is that there's probably a, a small but real association between the two.
0: Now, not everybody agrees that this link is real. Some studies find a connection. Some studies don't. If there is any link between toxo and schizophrenia, it is probably very small. And there is evidence to suggest that it doesn't exist at all.
4: I mean, you have, um, you know, some, some countries where you only have a few percent of uh, the population that's, in, that's infected with toxo versus you have others where there's more than, you know, you have 95 percent of people infected with toxo. But, I mean, schizophrenia rates are pretty stable at around 0.5 to 1 percent worldwide.
0: The thing with toxo and mental illness is that it's really hard to study.
4: I mean, the only way we, we really do these studies is by looking for the presence of antibodies to toxo. Uh, so basically, at, you know, at some point you were infected and you your body produced an immune reaction and all we're detecting is the after effects of that immune reaction. So this doesn't tell us when the infection occurred. It doesn't tell us, um, you, we know there are different strains of toxo that may have different effects, We do, but this doesn't tell us what strain of toxo
0: And. Even if there is a relationship between these two things, it's really hard to tease out which direction that relationship goes. Humans get infected with toxo in a few main ways. The most common is handling or eating undercooked meat. So the toxo comes out of the cat's butt in the form of poop. It gets spread into the soil. It gets eaten by grazing cattle or pigs, winds up in their meat. And if you don't cook your meat properly, you can get toxo from these animals. Another less common way that people get toxo is by handling cat litter since it lives in cat poop. Or you can get it by just handling dirt that has toxo living in it. So when it comes to schizophrenia, it's actually unclear and very hard to prove whether it's that toxo is pushing people towards schizophrenia or whether it's that people with schizophrenia are more likely to handle cat litter or dirt or consume undercooked meats especially in countries with terrible mental health services, where folks with mental health issues are given little to no support.
4: One of the ideal studies would be if you followed people uh, you know, from, I guess, a young age before they showed signs of mental illness and you know, were able to sort of check whether you were able to determine when they were infected with toxo. Did it happen before they had the mental illness or did it happen after?
0: And in fact, even in mice and rats, where the cat urine effect is very well established, scientists can't actually say very much about how toxo impacts the interactions of rodents and cats outside the lab. In fact, scientists don't even know if toxo-infected rats and mice in the wild are more likely to actually be eaten by cats.
4: So even though it's compelling for us to think of Toxo this sort of being this devious manipulator of behavior you know even with the even with the well-established effect the, 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 the toxo and rats, we don't know that Toxo is actually getting any benefit from that.
0: So the next time you see a headline about toxo being linked to personality or mental health or driving behaviors or whatever it is, put on your skeptical hat. And here's the thing. It's really tempting to talk about toxo as this parasite infecting people's brains and making people do things, whether that's love cats or run traffic lights or become entrepreneurs or have schizophrenia. And this gets at that same question that Tade and David were asking earlier. How many of your choices are really yours? And how many of them are being subtly impacted by some foreign entity? But when it comes to toxo, there's really no evidence that it's controlling our brains. Instead, we are all still very responsible for ourselves and our decisions. Which is a terrifying and powerful thing. Way more powerful than any brain parasite. That's all for this future. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussolonia. The voices from the future this week were provided by Charles Anderson, David Dunsmuir, Anthony Frisia, Andrea Klunder, and Brent Rose. You can check out Brent's project, Connected States, in which he drives around the U.S. in a big van at connectedstates.com. You can listen to Andrea's podcast, The Creative Imposter, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to be a voice in a future scene for Flash Forward, that is one of the perks of a $10 Patreon pledge. Wow. Whenever I need voices, I send out a little note to those patrons, and people can sign up to do one. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky, who is amazing, by the way. You should check out their art, and you should go look at the new magazine that they are creating at the comics website The Nib. Go to membership.thenib.com to learn more about that. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at I love hearing your ideas. I try to respond to every email that I get. Um, I think it's really fun to hear from you. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give financially. But if giving money is not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review or just tell your friends about the show. That really, really does help. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.